Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com I'm your host, Aaron Fleming. I'm a huge true crime fan. So if you're anything like me, you're always looking for those interesting cases. I found one that I've never heard of, and it's just bananas. As I read about it, I found my opinion all over the place. First, I was like, oh man, those poor people, who could have done that? To, oh, that's grisly. To, what, a conspiracy angle? Yes, the story goes all over the place. So, of course, anything that lands in conspiracy land is right up my alley. When officers went to a Houston home to do just a welfare check, everything appeared normal at first. There was food sitting out on the table as if a meal was about to be prepared. One officer opened a fridge, and he noticed some unwrapped meat that was stacked on the shelves. Then slowly, his eyes scanned down, and to his horror, he saw two human heads in the vegetable bins. And yes, you're correct, that unwrapped meat was not from an animal. This week, I'll discuss the icebox murders of Fred and Edwina Rogers. Obviously, this is going to be a very gory case, so if any of those details might bother you, you'll need to just skip this episode. But before I go into the case, I just have to tell you about the past couple of weeks that I've had. 
Did you ever have such a bad week that you have to just laugh? Well, you know, you laugh after you've cried a bit. So long story short, I came down with this awful cold. It was obviously, to me, just a cold. I had stuffy nose, drainage, and a cough. It was a wet cough, not dry like the corona cough. But I work around a lot of patients at my job, so I did a video call with the doctor to get the all clear. But to my surprise, the doctor wanted a COVID test. I honestly just thought she would tell me it was a cold since I didn't have any of the symptoms of coronavirus. Anyway, I had to get a test and wait for results, causing me to miss work. Three days later, I got the all clear. That sucked, but good that I don't have it and good that I can go back to work with the patients. Then this past week, I was on my way back to my hometown. I was going to do an interview with a woman whose father was murdered a few years ago. And on my way there, I noticed six missed calls. Apparently, my mother threatened to jump off her balcony and was taken to the psych ward at the hospital. She's home now. She said it was just an infection that caused her to become confused and disoriented. I have my doubts about this because I have a long history of trouble with my mom. And if you've heard me say anything about her before, you know I'm not getting the whole truth. Anyways, it's all been pretty stressful. I'm glad she's well, of course, but she's been very cold to me and there's some deep-seated hatred that emanates her from whatever reason. And she's been drinking. Anyways, I've been dealing with all of that on top of things. My recording with the victim's daughter didn't come out. I don't know if the file was corrupted or what. The only thing that kept my sanity this week was watching Bailey Sarian videos. And if you're not familiar with her, she does these makeup tutorials on YouTube. At the same time, she tells a true crime story. This is such a perfect mesh of my two favorite things. And she's really funny. She made me laugh and that's just what I needed. I love her videos. Long story short, check her out. I just wanted to say that if you're like me and you've been having a bad couple of weeks, you're not alone. And you should watch some Bailey Sarian to make yourself feel better. Now, on with the story. I used a few different articles for my research, including one on mental floss from Jake Rosen, one from Houston Press by Angelica Liked, Wikipedia, of course, I think I used Murderpedia, and of course, I used one from my new favorite true crime writer, Kat Lee, on Medium.com. Probably the best way to start the story is at the discovery of the victims and to work our way back. On June 23, 1965, the Houston Police Department received a call from a man named Marvin Martin. And he was concerned about his aunt and uncle. That was 81-year-old Fred Rogers and 79-year-old Edwina. So the elderly couple weren't answering their phone, which was unusual, and this prompted their nephew to call the police. Two officers, Charles Bullock and L.M. Barta, went to the home at 1815 Driscoll Street to perform that welfare check. And when their knocks weren't answered, they broke down the front door. So first of all, I found that detail odd, but... I thought about it. It's the 60s, so I guess they would just break the door down. Nowadays, I think you have to see a body or really have cause to break down a door. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's how it is. Another odd detail was there were a bunch of flower pots that were stacked against the front door. 
the officers had to set those aside before they even broke the door down. Upon entering the home, everything appeared normal. However, when they entered the kitchen, they noticed a really strong smell coming from the fridge. And when Bollock opened the door, he noticed some unwrapped cuts of meat that were stacked on the shelf. Now, different places I read that they were wrapped and that they looked like they were washed. He naturally assumed this meat was from the butcher. In fact, he even said to the other guy that it would be a shame if all this went to waste. Now, in different accounts, I read that the meat was stacked on top of the fridge and that he opened the fridge to get a beer on the hot summer day. Regardless, the fridge was normal until he noticed the vegetable crisper containing two human heads, those of Fred and Edwina Rogers. Fred and Edwina had been viciously murdered and dismembered. Fred had been beaten to death, and he had his eyes and genitalia removed. Edwina had been shot. Their bodies were found in the bedroom upstairs. And in addition to the dismemberment, the bodies had been drained of blood. The officers said that the house had been meticulously cleaned. The couple's missing organs were apparently flushed down the toilet and found in a nearby sewer. They surmised that the couple had been dismembered in the bathroom since there was a little bit of blood found there, and the rest of the house had been thoroughly cleaned. The murderer took their time and would have had a knowledge of anatomy. Fred and his wife had been in sales their whole lives and had just recently retired. So who would want to murder the retired couple? As in most cases, the first people that they looked at are the family. And in Fred and Edwina's case, this would have been their son, 43-year-old Charles. However, he was not in the house, particularly the attic where he lived. And what's odd was that Charles owned the house, so why was this guy living in the attic? When they did go up there, police found blood on the keyhole, as well as a handsaw that they think was used to perform the dismemberments. A claw hammer was recovered, but I couldn't find out exactly where. So right away, investigators learned that Charles was an odd individual. And it was said that he left the house well before sunrise, and he only returned after dark limiting the time that he saw his parents. In fact, next-door neighbors didn't even realize that he lived there. This limited interaction with his parents was obviously something of a choice because when he was in contact with them, it was very unusual. Instead of speaking to them directly, he would instead write notes and slip them under the door. Naturally, Charles became the main suspect after hearing of the strained family interactions, and his obvious absence after their gruesome murders. Investigators worked to learn as much as they could about the couple's adult son. Charles Rogers graduated from the University of Houston, where he earned a Bachelor of Science degree in nuclear physics. He served in World War II in the Navy as a pilot. Later, he worked as a seismologist for Shell Oil for about nine years, until one day he just quit without notice. Those who knew Charles described him as very intelligent. In fact, he spoke seven different languages. Charles had a very avid interest in ham radios too, so you know this guy was a brainiac. I mean, have you ever met a dumb guy that was interested in ham radios? Investigators were just stumped because they couldn't find the reclusive man. 
despite issuing a warrant, he was never found. And it wasn't until the publication of two different books that anything about this case would even come to light. The first was the 1992 book called The Man on the Grassy Knoll. This was by John R. Craig and Philip A. Rogers. Grassy Knoll obviously gives away where this is going. The authors claim that Charles was a CIA agent who was involved in the assassination of John F. Kennedy. They believe that he was one of the three tramps that were arrested in Dealey Plaza. If you're not familiar with the tramp theory, let me give you a little brief summary. Right after President Kennedy was assassinated, three men were photographed under a police escort right outside of the Texas School Book Depository where supposedly Lee Harvey Oswald shot the president. Now, many different people have been suspected of being the three mysterious men throughout the years. The most interesting one probably being Charles Harrelson. He's the father of actor Woody Harrelson. Apparently in 1982, contract killer Charles Harrelson confessed to being involved in this murder during a six-hour standoff while high on cocaine. So let's jump down this rabbit hole. Charles Void Harrelson was born on July 23, 1938 in Lovelady, Texas. He was the son of Alma Lee and Void Harrelson. Charles worked as a door-to-door encyclopedia salesman for many years to make a living. And for you younger folks, before the internet, people had volumes of encyclopedias that they would purchase for their homes. And then that's how you got information. I remember doing school reports and having to look up things in encyclopedias. You couldn't buy these things in stores. They were basically sold by salesmen. So a lot of things were sold that way back in the day. So this wasn't an unusual job for someone. However, it probably didn't bring in much bank, which is probably why Harrelson turned to a life of crime. In 1960, he was convicted of armed robbery. His son, Woodrow Tracy, was born in 1961. But as well as being a con man, he also was a deadbeat dad, deserting Woody and his two brothers and their mother. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Diane in 1968. Woody didn't know much about his dad until 1981 when Charles was arrested for the murder of Judge John H. Wood Jr. He later developed a relationship with his estranged father by visiting him in prison. Most notably, Charles Harrelson was known as a contract killer. In 1968, he was tried for the murder of Alan Harry Berg, but was acquitted by a jury. That same year, he was tried for the 1968 murder and the death of Sam DeGallia. Supposedly, Harrelson was paid $2,000, which would be around $15,000 in today's money, to murder this father and grain dealer in McAllen, Texas. Now, that trial ended in a deadlocked jury, and he was later retried in 1973. In that time, he was not so lucky, being found guilty and sentenced to 15 years in prison. In 1978, after he was paroled, Charles was implicated in the murder of U.S. District Judge John H. Wood Jr., who was shot in a parking lot outside his San Antonio townhouse. Harrelson was hired by this drug dealer, Jamil Chagra, who was scheduled to appear in court before the judge on the day of his murder. And Chagra's brother, Joe, visited his brother in prison and recorded this tape, which was used as evidence. So that earned Harrelson life in prison, as well as Harrelson's wife, Joanne, who was also sentenced in the crime. And Chagra later recounted his statements and declared that Harrelson was not involved. Now, let's get to this police standoff in 1980. During this cocaine-fueled six-hour standoff with police, Charles Harrelson confessed not only to killing the judge, but to killing John F. Kennedy. Joe Chagra also testified that Harrelson had drawn maps showing where he hid during the assassination. It's believed that he was the youngest and the tallest of the three tramps, and this was in a book called Crossfire by conspiracy theorist Jim Mars. If you're not familiar with Jim Mars, if you watch Ancient Aliens, you will see him on there. Anyways, Mars believes that Harrelson had ties to the intelligence community and knew Jack Ruby and a guy named Russell Douglas Matthews, who had links to organized crime. A forensic artist named Lewis Gibson reportedly matched up photographs of a young Charles to photographs of the youngest tramp. Now, to me, this whole thing is fascinating. And there is a whole podcast just related to Charles Harrelson, and it's called Son of a Hitman, but I have not listened to it yet. I'm pretty eager to. So in this book about the grassy knoll, the two authors claim that Harrelson, Charles Rogers, and a man named Chauncey Holt were the three men behind the picket fence on the grassy knoll. And as if that's not crazy enough, Charles's first wife, Diane, this is Woody's mother, her maiden name was Oswald. But I have no idea and could not find out if she's any relation to Lee Harvey. So let me throw another factoid your way. Harrelson's attorney in the Sam DeGallia case was Percy Foreman. 
and this guy represented James Earl Ray. Harrelson tried to break out of prison in 1995, but he was recaptured, and then he died of a heart attack in prison in 2007. Okay, so now let's get back to Charles Rogers. According to the theory proposed in this book, when Charles Rogers joined the Civil Air Patrol in the 50s, he met David Ferry. If you've seen Oliver Stone's JFK, you may very well remember Joe Pesci playing Ferry, and he had these crazy eyebrows. As a refresher, Ferry is thought to be by New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison to be highly involved in the assassination plot. It's proposed that Charles Rogers' parents caught wind of his involvement in the JFK assassination, and he had to kill them. In the book by John Craig and Philip Rogers, they say that Charles was a CIA agent from 1956 to the mid-80s. They think that he disappeared and died years later in South America. The Medium article that I read said the book was criticized for its lack of evidence. The second book to come to light about Charles Rogers was The Icebox Murder, and it was written by forensic accountant Hugh Gardenay and his wife Martha. Now, a forensic accountant, I had to look it up. They just go back through some people's financial records. They have a different take on Charles Rogers, which isn't so conspiracy-laden, and it's a bit easier to digest. They basically believe that Charles had a lot of hatred for his parents due to being physically and emotionally abused. Apparently, this couple had been faking their son's signature on land deeds that belonged to him. And like I mentioned before, the house that they all lived in actually belonged to Charles. And his mother had been taking out loans on the home and kept the money for herself. Fred was reportedly a bookie and hardcore into illegal gambling. The authors believe that Charles had carefully planned the murders and then escaped to Mexico with the help from contacts in the oil and mining industry that he'd worked in before. They think that he then went to Honduras and was killed during a fight with miners in a wage dispute that resulted in a pickaxe in his head. So obviously more people get on board with their theories. The idea that he'd been abused really does make sense when you think about the savagery of these killings. Edwina had been shot execution style, but Fred really suffered the most. So it makes one think that Fred might have been the abuser of Charles, but of course this is all speculation. In the book, it's alleged that not long after the murders, a man fitting Charles' description was seen asking about a job overseas. They proposed that he might have even escaped the country using aircraft. Very plausible because he was a pilot. He would have had a lot of contacts in the industry he worked in. And, you know, he could have easily found people to help him escape. Honestly, though, no one has seemed to explore the idea that Charles Rogers did not commit these crimes. I mean, that's not out of the realm of possibility that he himself was a victim and murdered or possibly even framed for the death of his parents. Think about it. It would be a perfect way to discredit him. So say that he did have some shady dealings with the CIA. This would be very easy for this to be done. And I've read about plenty of cases where a family has been killed and one member isn't found. So yes, suspicion falls to them, but they could also be a victim themselves. I mean, think about the Ketty murders. 
Not saying that this is what I believe, though. The fact that he was never found alive or dead, ever. He was declared dead in absentia in 1975. As far as I could find out, no one else has been suspected of the murders other than Charles Rogers. So that was the Icebox murders. It's a really wild case. You never really expect it to lead to the JFK assassination. I need to check out that podcast about Charles Harrison. I actually wanted to do an episode a while back on him, but then I heard about that podcast and I scrapped the idea. You don't want to ride on someone's coattails, I guess. I mean, honestly, you could lose yourself for days in the conspiracy surrounding the JFK assassination. I used to work with this lady, Rebecca, who would just light up whenever you would mention that conspiracy. And she was always suggesting really good books for me to check out. Personally, I think it was a conspiracy. There's no way it was a lone gunman. Man, go ahead and fight me on that. And sometime in the near future, I'm going to have another case that I'm going to cover, and it has ties to the JFK assassination. Anyways, I'm hoping to do a Halloween-themed episode this month. And I definitely want to get this one out there that I did the interview for, but I'm going to have to redo that interview. Anyways, the world is crazy. My stress is through the roof, so we'll see. If you do have any good case suggestions, just send them to me at redrumblonde at gmail.com. Don't forget the E on the end of blonde. You can also find me, of course, on social media. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please join the Red Rum Blonde Facebook discussion group. I don't think I've had anyone new join lately. Our last member was Chris. I think I welcomed him in the last episode. My adventures with my mother are not over. I got a call that she got evicted because she's drunk and causing trouble at her housing complex. So I don't even know what to do at this point. I'm beyond stressed. Anyways, I hope all of you are safe and well and keep safe. It's a mad world out there and it's really not getting any better. <laughs> November is going to be a shit show. Anyways, I appreciate anybody that's listening. Of course, thank you guys so much. Thank you to my Patreons too. It's really nice to know that someone's out there supporting me and catch you all next time. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.